Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Now, Dr. Kuntz tells me that these are going to be fun. Uh, we're going to got two episodes now on another city. We talked about Chicago last time. All of this sort of my need, the whole show, goodness, thank you, Dr. Kuntz, is my need to put myself in context in history so I can try to decide <laughs> what to do next. After having been red pill, do you want to call it that? Woke up, got out of the matrix, left Egypt. 2020 made me realize that what I thought I was doing as a parish pastor wasn't all bad. Don't get me wrong. Um, there were good, good bones and seeds in the ground, but um, wasn't all good either. W- was missing some of what the enemy was up to and forgotten a little bit about the beast out of the sea and how much he can he can make the beast out of the land do what he wants to do, if you understand the St. John Revelation talk. So, uh, backing up from beast, I'm in Chicago. It's a city. I'm not in Chicago. Chicago land, greater Chicago area. It's a city. It has an impact on all of Illinois. It's a microcosm for how to put yourself in context in history. But... What good is one microcosm when you can have two and compare and contrast? So San Francisco today, I mean, if there was a city that I didn't want to live in more than not wanting to live in Chicago, <laughs> I, I, I've been through San Francisco. You know, I went to, I went to undergrad in the Bay Area, um, Sonoma Valley, and uh, gone over the Bay Bridge a couple of times, watched that thing almost come down on TV in the 80s. Uh, so like, it's in my memory banks, uh, this city by the bay, as the music likes to sing about it. Um, but man, it, even when I was nice, and I, that was what, the early 2000s you go, and it, it wasn't like, you know, people pooping on the streets or anything. Um, but still, it was always, it was expensive. It was cramped, smelled like fish i mean it was it, it what's good about san francisco well there's a history there and that's what we're going to get into today dr Koontz, there's your intro the history of san francisco is not notably well known or terribly actually routine for an american city because of the circumstances of its beginning and we're not talking about san francisco because it's going to explain so many other cities or even so many other smaller places in the United States that will, will that will somehow like resemble it in the way that machine politics can be looked at as a dynamic first vote harvesting and then ballot harvesting in the history of politics in Chicago where you're looking at an example that is just a blown up a magnified and easier to see version of something that you can see almost anywhere else that collecting votes is going to be necessary. In the case of San Francisco, what we're talking about this week and next is stuff that is important, usually because it's first and it's it's pioneering. So it's blazing a trail that others will then follow. At the time, it's going to seem really strange. And there are things about San Francisco, both built into where it is and how it is, but also in its history, you know, the things that human beings have have impacted, have changed that are that are very unique nonetheless it is actually generally only unique for a while and then the pattern that it has set becomes standard in other places and a lot of this gets lost i think particularly because people generally don't know where things come from because they come to us in ways that are disembodied so they come through the media So it would be one thing to say, well, the first time I heard about pride flags, which are invented in San Francisco, was when my, you know, daughter returned home to Iowa after living in San Francisco for the past 14 years. Okay. That would be one thing if that were the standard medium by which something came to us. And then we knew, like in the same way that we know 
you know, this food or, or whatever comes from this place. Like here, this is, you know, this is Chicago deep dish pizza. You know, the chain restaurant you can find almost anywhere in the United States is called old Chicago. Cause we know, we know where it comes from with San Francisco things usually come to us through the media and they, they might've been covered in the media in San Francisco at a certain time. And we'll give some examples of that with pop culture, with religion, with gay rights, but generally it's, it's coming to us through several levels of, I'm intentionally using this word mediation. So we're not really aware of the source of these things. And in the case, when, when San Francisco gets covered directly today, it's as this sort of insane tragedy case. So what we want to look at is if if those are our pioneers <laughs> and they've ended up in this way, then you know, how did they put us on these different trails that they're leading us down? And and how maybe do we exit that trail? Because I don't want to go there. Right. I don't, I don't want to end up there. So if you want to think about it this way, both this week and next. There are points at which all the different trails west, maybe with the exception of the Santa Fe Trail, are all running. They're all running in the same place. So whether you're going to end up in Utah or maybe you're going to stop in Wyoming or you're going to go to California or go to Oregon, at some point you're walking the same track and you have choices of when to stop. So because the California Trail is going to land you in San Francisco, you might want to think of this at least metaphorically as I'm going to get on a different trail. Now, maybe maybe you don't want to get on the Oregon Trail right now. <laughs> that might be a bad one too. <laughs> but the, the, the trail that's going to lead you to San Francisco does have a particular track. And so we want to spend this week and next sort of uncovering how San Francisco is pioneering usually a decade to, to two decades to sometimes three before everyone else, things that certainly in the past 15 years have become normal throughout the United States and and to some degree throughout the world. And significantly, the flag invented in San Francisco, the pride flag, doesn't just get flown by like the state of California. It gets flown by American embassies nationwide or worldwide at various times. So that's that's why, you know, I'm not to put down Chicago, but there's a sense in which San Francisco just matters a lot more for modern understanding where the modern world comes yeah, from. Yeah, what what did they do to make themselves that cultural bellwether? What makes San Francisco so special in the American pie? It is it is partly its abnormality really from the first because San Francisco has always attracted and partly because of the tech industry still does even even after 2020 certainly the area does. San Francisco has always attracted a, a a transient population. And the thing about transient populations is that they contain, as we know with any anybody that sees images from San Francisco at any point in the past, certainly the past five years, enormous numbers of homeless. That is transients in, in the way that that word has historically been used, right? Vagrants. Hobos, tramps, you know, different different words for do you want to work or not work or you probably don't and San Francisco is going to pay for you not to work anyway. So that's one sense of transient. There's another sense where you get people who are willing to take risks for the sake of what would appear to be a very large reward. And that's true for anything in its beginnings is that you're asking you're, you're sort of pre-selecting in a group when you're starting something new for people that have both the psychological, you might even say spiritual, both blessings and curses of high risk tolerance. So San Francisco would be the, the polar opposite of a much more sedentary regional city that, I mean, maybe you could pick, I don't know. Cleveland, Detroit, Pittsburgh at this point, certainly not when San Francisco is getting going during the the gold rush and beginning in 1849, because those three cities I just named are actually up and coming at that time. But you're, you're asking people to move somewhere, certainly in San Francisco's beginning and, and to some degree throughout its history, who are who are very high risk tolerant but therefore also might have skills or capabilities 
or dreams or aspirations that other people do not. This is this is why we've talked about California quite a bit on the show because this is actually how not only the people that settled California, but even people relatively, I mean, half a century after San Francisco gets going as an American city. It had been a it had been a Spanish settlement. But as an American city, half a century later, Teddy Roosevelt is observing that California is 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 what he says west of the West. It is it is beyond the sort of just, you know, empty space that I can make into whatever I may. And it's it's almost something new, but it's in that way sort of an apex of what will later be called the American dream, right? The sense that you can become whatever you would like to become. And just on a like sheer historical level, that makes San Francisco abnormal in the concentration of those people because it is and aspires to be really from the first, the imperial city of the United States of America. I mean, they they aspire from the first, we're going to surpass New York City, not necessarily in population, but in importance. That's their aspiration from the first. And we're going to do that because we are the purest expression of what it means to seek things out and to make of yourself what you can. Now, this is this feels a really long way from like, you know, I'm trying to build something in modern California and there's insane amounts of zoning and, you know, the taxes are this high and whatever, right? But we're talking in the beginning, this is what it meant to be. And there's a sense in which it's abnormal in the concentration of those people that you're going to get. It's very normal in the sense of the aspirations that they have. So that's a powerful combo when you have a group of people, a city, even if you have an individual who in a way is very normal. You know what I mean? Like historically, San Francisco wasn't a place that was so radically culturally different from the rest of the United States that people like it was just sort of a byword, right? So you have a you have a byword already. I can find it as far back as the 1980s in California politics, quote, San Francisco values. This still gets attached to like Nancy Pelosi and stuff, which is like, those people are weird. We're not like them. They're not like us. That wasn't really the idea. And that isn't really the power because in order in order to communicate with people and, and to change their minds, you have to at least know, sympathize, understand, possibly even have the same dreams and aspirations. If you combine that with an abnormal focus or concentration or power or energy, I think that's what that's what will turn it into. But that's why it also was from the start a certain kind of a a power or a force that honestly, by contrast, and certainly before the advent of Hollywood, Los Angeles wasn't at all. Because San Francisco was from the first self-consciously like trying to be a place of grandeur. And the railroad barons help make it that. But I think what what we're saying is from the first, it's meant to be something incredibly powerful by people who are there seeking their wildest dreams, right? I mean, if you think about the California gold rush, like the one that would follow it about 10 years later in Colorado and, and other gold, gold and silver rushes, those are sort of the American version of what causes the conquistadors to roam over most of the Southern United States. Right? It's a sense that everything could change based on what you could find here. And the difference between the Americans and the Spanish conquistadors is that the Americans, some of them actually find it. Mm. <laughs> you know, And so that's going to make places that are unlike in a certain way, but in their own way, very, I think, normal in their aspirations anywhere else in the United States. Yeah, because wherever you got that um, extreme entrepreneurial risk-taking spirit, uh, right. you also have those who are uh, selling them the stuff that they need to do what they're doing, right? So every guy that's going out to mine, there's someone selling a pickaxe. And the that's pickaxe, right. The pickaxe store in San Francisco is probably doing pretty well, you know, at a certain point. And then now you got <laughs> that guy's got to go out to eat, right? Yeah. And he's got to get some food. And so, you know, it, it becomes more than just what the ideologues or the um, the dreamers would have it be, but that uh, the zest is is in what they're pursuing. And as a frontier city, um, 
yeah, it really was the end of the world. It's it's Tolkien's The West in some really weird and upside down way, and then it becomes Gene Bot- Roddenberry's uh, center of Starfleet as well, which is I don't think accidental, honestly. The, the, uh, no, no, that, not at all. That way of looking at it. So, but I think your question um, in, from your outline here, you know, okay, so we've established San Francisco is abnormal, but like, you know, how normal is Erie, Erie, Indiana? Really, you know, uh, how, how normal is it? Uh, where is normal? What is normal? How are we defining that right now? Yeah. So this is an interesting thing also to consider, I think, even today about one's own aspirations or sense of like, you know, if I could just quit my job today, here's what I do with my life kind of a thing is that there's a very interesting book we'll cover probably later in the year, a sort of deep background to some of the early American history we'll, we'll do in, in, spurts and series this year called The Origins of English Individualism by a guy named Alan McFarlane. And one of the things that he notes is that Englishmen dating back prior to the Reformation move around more than other European countries. That is basically they don't really, they don't think of themselves and they don't really possess as a nation the kind of peasantry that you get in most European countries, which are going to be the source of a lot of immigration to America in the 19th and 20th centuries. Also, in the case of San Francisco, from both Japan and China as well. So San Francisco has immigration sources at least up to the early 20th century that that most American states do not have. But the difference is that your sort of founding group of the United States of America and certainly the founding group of the Central Pacific Railroad and the the people who are going to build beautiful mansions on Knob Hill and the founding group kind of in anywhere, certainly in the northern half of the United States, the let's say the Yankees generically, those people have never been actually all that accustomed to staying in one place as a group. And if you live in the Midwest, you can probably look into the deep history of your community and you will probably find that the oldest names in your graveyard as well as you know the way your town is laid out and if you can look at property deeds the the first names on those deeds those are those are probably going to be english names or they'll be highly americanized english name or yeah highly americanized german names like the preacher billy sunday who's family was originally from Pennsylvania. Those people will move on because they will not stay in one place. And they are generally replaced. They're replaced in, you know, Minnesota by Scandinavians and in Illinois by Germans and so on and so forth. At San Francisco, they stop. (laughs) Guess where are they supposed to go? Some of them are in Hawaii. Hawaii is an American state because of various Yankee efforts, missionary and commercial, but they're going to they're going to go on. So in that way places like San Francisco but for the Yankees also Portland and Seattle are refuges and they are stopping places. These are the people who are going to lead the bear flag revolt that will allow California to turn into an American state pretty simply in the course of the Mexican-American War. Those folks are going to make it a different place by virtue of that group, then like Erie, Pennsylvania is going to be because your Erie's and your Buffalo's and your Indianapolis's are going to be occupied by people who have stopped moving. California, you kind of have to stop moving because your American landmass is at an end. There are other places you can go from there, but it's, it's going to be a different place because it is a place where the people who pushed farthest and fastest, that's where they had to stop. So, this is going to foster through a variety of institutions in San Francisco or in the Bay Area more generally, including eventually Stanford University and its particular approach to innovation, which is really going to pick up after the Second World War, which will then create Silicon Valley. This just creates a different culture. And what gets described, whether you're reading about, there's a really great kind of collective biography of the two longest serving governors of California who are father and son, Ed Brown and Jerry Brown. They're both actually named Ed Brown, but 
Ed Brown and Jerry Brown, the Browns of California, who are Irish Catholic, or you can read about, you know, the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. Everybody's going to say people are unusually open to change here. That's that's a cultural factor built in from those first people that got there. If that gets effaced in a place like Minneapolis, seemingly, it gets preserved at the place where they all had to stop, okay, because the continent had ended. So that that does make it unusual. It doesn't make it utterly unique in the sense that, you know, is there anywhere in the United States as Finnish as the Upper Peninsula of Michigan? I don't. I don't think so, right? It's not really unique in that way, but it, it is it's a unique concentration of something. So I think that's that's always something to keep in mind is that history doesn't just matter based on who is currently remembering what. It matters in ways that are often deeper or original to your place or your family, your city, whatever that then are still operating, even if people have forgotten how they began to operate that way. So what's a normal problem in a normal city? <laughs> a normal problem in a normal city might be something like streets. It might be something like zoning. It might be something like there are pickpockets in this you know, square after dark. That is... That is something that if you want access to it, you usually have to live there in order to know about it. Or you go back in history and you can find, for example, discussions of how to get more space in San Francisco because something that is a little abnormal about it is its geography makes high-density living kind of natural. Okay, so San Francisco, which is a combined city-county, is surpassed in population density really only by four out of the five New York boroughs. So Staten Island is less densely populated than San Francisco. Because of that concentration, they're going to do things that every city that is next to water thinks about doing and tries to do at some point, which is to scoop more city out of the water, right? So Brooklyn did that. San Francisco does that. That's a normal problem in a normal city there are things that are going to be problems in San Francisco from the first that are not particularly normal, but they will, because San Francisco will prove to be a sort of pioneer or a bellwether, they will turn into problems that other people have. So San Francisco struggles with importation of diseases, otherwise pretty much unknown in the United States. From 1900 to 1904, San Francisco at that time, still not a place where, you know, gay marriage is legal, obviously, in 1904. But San Francisco, because we still have at that at that point a fairly significant and potentially growing Chinese population, imports from China the plague. Like, like when you think of like the Middle Ages. Like the actual. That. The. The actual. Yes. First name basis. Not, first name yeah, famous. No, I, no I, don't, I don't mean like TikTok video of people falling down on the street. No. Like actual plague. And there is a large debate within the political machine. Again, thank you. Hat tip to Chicago. Within the political machine at that point running San Francisco, which is largely Republican. Helpful to remember California not only votes Republican until – 1992 in presidential elections, but it's at this point in history, early 20th century, San Francisco is Northern California is Republican. San Francisco is Republican. Southern California, because it's largely settled by Southerners, is much more democratic right? in this way that the South was democratic at the time. So the Republican machine is debating amongst themselves, should we like let other people know that this is going on? So think about that, right? They have two, there's one, there's one reality that is definitive and there's one worry. The reality is San Francisco in 1902 is still so far away from the rest of the United States, practically speaking, that they can keep things quiet. So you can go on the internet today and find any number of sort of horrific tour videos of, you know, this is day-to-day -day life in San Francisco. Here are these homeless people. 
here's, you know, this street full of cars that got broken into last night, whatever. Okay. They, they're, they're debating, should we keep this quiet? Because then people won't want to come. They won't see it as a place of opportunity. So there's a certain like boosterism that is inherent that in a settled community you don't have. Like if you just accept we have 700 people in this village and it's not going to get a lot smaller and it's not going to get a lot bigger, you don't need boosterism anymore. The people that live there are the people who live there. San Francisco is always thinking about how to get better and bigger, right? So they debate. And then finally, they can't keep it entirely under wraps and they decide to admit that they're dealing with a problem. The worry is that it will lose its luster if they admit that they have these problems. The plague is going to get eclipsed in everyone's mind by the earthquake and then the much more destructive fires that follow it in 1906. But it's both those things, both the plague and then the destruction of the earthquake and fires that are the reason that in 1915, San Francisco is going to have this giant exhibition really only eclipsed in American history by the World's Fair that Chicago had had in 1893. San Francisco does that not in order to say that they are a normal city, but they're not trying to be abnormal in the sense that they're trying to be like extremely weird. That's a... Uh, cultural value that's really like a very post-1960s thing. They're saying we're different from other American cities in that we are better, monumental, majestic, beautiful. And the major political debates they're having at the time involve like how wide and majestic are we going to make our streets? Because most people want to just rebuild what was burnt down by the fires. Some of the city fathers want to make it this I mean, in its own shining city on several hills, that's the idea. So there's a sense in which San Francisco never aspired to be normal. They wanted to be abnormal in their excellence. It's their abnormality, not so much in excellence as in decay that we're interested in this week and next, but you can see that that all happened in a place that never was trying to be normal. So there, there were, there were, and there are normal problems in San Francisco that you have in a village of 700 or a small city in some, you know, in the Rust Belt somewhere. But that was that was never the idea. <laughs> they always wanted to be more, right? And they they consciously aspired to in the way in the way that America has never particularly wanted to be an entirely normal country. Yeah, well, and I think that's some of the red pill too. Uh, that we have believed there's something about us that yeah. is not normal in some sort of good, righteous, valuable way, whatever it is, right. freedom, freedom, right. all this. Uh, and so that that ethos, it, it, it's inescapable. And then to think, okay, so San Francisco is a symbol of this spirit. It is a historical place where this spirit that has really infiltrated the uh, the inner life of, of all Americans, at least to some extent, uh, it's where it radiates from. And that this was yeah. something on purpose. This was something intentional, which to me, like one of the, the big takeaways from that right away is like, okay, so you keep saying they, they, you know, who was they, the city of San Francisco, it's a big they. Well, it means it was a small group of people that yeah. were able to influence this larger group of people with their their zeal, their ideology, their vision, right? And a lot of what we are encouraging individuals who listen to this show to do is to do just that uh, where they are, you know, with their county, their neighborhood, their community, uh, and and believe that, like that small, dare, dare we call it oligarchy of, of conversation, uh, can move neighborhoods to move cities to do things that are uh, previously kind of unseen, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, that's right. Because they is never about, you know, every single Italian immigrant who invested in what was originally called the Bank of Italy and is now called the Bank of America. Or it's not about every single Irish Catholic who somehow worked in something connected to the water in San Francisco and lived in tightly knit Irish Catholic neighborhoods. It's about the Brown family or other Irish Catholic families who had opportunities and openness in San Francisco 
that they didn't have in Boston until much later, even though there were more of them in Boston. So you're always talking, when you're talking about history, you are always talking about pretty small minorities mattering. So what is sometimes called the great man theory of history that gets identified with Thomas Carlyle, which is the idea that history is moved along by people such as Napoleon. I I subscribe to with this caveat that I think it's usually mostly a great men group moving things along rather than a single great man. Sometimes I think that does happen. But the idea that history is somehow moved along by large, you know, anonymous social forces is just not true, especially when you when you're able to have a relatively small scale where you can say, okay, this guy was mayor of San Francisco. He did this. AP Giannini founded the Bank of Italy, turned it into the Bank of America. These Italian immigrants came and they fostered what would become California's wine industry, you know, obviously centered in Northern California because of climate still today. So those kinds of things, you're you're always looking and you're not saying like every single person in San Francisco, you know, Joe DiMaggio's mom, you know, you you don't have to say all that. You can say like, these people did this, these people did that. So in the case of San Francisco, you have a wider array of people socially, ethnically, religiously than in an Eastern city with more class lines, ethnic lines, so on. But you're always talking about relatively small numbers. So the same people who are going to be instrumental in a lot of the first literature that comes out of California, like Jack London, are also going to be people who are, are instrumental in founding the Bohemian Club, which is the club that is the origin of and, and sponsor and owner of Bohemian Grove, which most listeners will have some awareness of as a a spooky place for elites to cavort, right, that Alex Jones <laughs> broke into. Okay, that... All of that begins very early in San Francisco's history, and those dynamics don't really change. What does change is that over time, a city that, despite its ambitions, is sort of limited by its geography and was mainly connected to you know, in industries that would be useful to other places on the West Coast, to the agriculture and its hinterlands, and then also to the ocean massively changes during the Second World War. And so we said last year in talking about larger world history that the First World War is determinative of the Second and really in its own way more determinative of everything that followed than the Second would be. That has to be revised. And maybe the reason it was surprising to most of the listeners was because it has to be revised to account for America. America doesn't really suffer from the First World War at all, nor does it change significantly in a lasting way necessarily. So major and absolutely enormous population shifts do not occur for Americans during the First World War or because of it. That's different for the Second World War. So in the Second World War, the thing that really changes for California is that the federal government injects enormous amounts of money into the entirety of the state of California, but especially into Los Angeles and San Francisco. So this means two population shifts, and this is going to change a lot of things. The one population shift would appear to be temporary, although it turns out to be less temporary because people will come back. But a lot of people get stationed in San Francisco, especially obviously in the Navy, during the Second World War, those populations are going to get not only you know smaller when the war ends, but they will be reinforced by the second wave, which is people that move there for defense jobs, because America isn't really out of the Great Depression exactly by the time we get into the Second World War. They're going to move there for defense jobs, and they're going to stay. And then there are people that were stationed there, and then will come back there because they liked it so much. And at the time, San Francisco is is actually relatively cheap to live in. You can have a pretty nice middle-class life. So it's going to expand. The entire Bay Area will expand enormously 
in the decades after the Second World War. What's especially going to change about World War II in San Francisco, and this is where we begin to set up for next week, is that a population of people self-consciously thinking of themselves, you know, self-consciously shaping their lives around the fact that they are homosexual begins to coalesce in San Francisco. So nobody, and I'm, I mean, to prepare for these episodes, I've generally read people that would think that my moral opinions as a Christian are heinous and backward and horrible. So I'm, I'm not getting this from, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, so David Barton wrote a wall builders book about the history of San Francisco. It didn't happen. Right. So this is kind of internal remembered history is that there's no self-conscious, certainly no open homosexual group anywhere with any institutions in San Francisco prior to the second world war. And that it's really during the war that especially bars serving sailors become places for what are now called gay men to meet and that those things really don't predate that time when an already somewhat transient city becomes extremely transient during wartime. So that's a weird thing to me. Why is it weird? Well, what's the link between sailors on either leave or government workers stationed in the area and now these men who are known throughout history for uh, drinking, cavorting, gambling, um, you know, doing live and fly by night, live in transient lifestyle. Now suddenly they're looking for a gay bar. Like what's, what's the link there? It seems like that's a jump. Yeah, I know. I know it feels like a jump and that's because there's no, there's like no way to document this. So the thing, the thing that is the only alternative theory to this. Okay. And I mean, San Francisco has the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender historical society. So this is like the place to, to study these things, I suppose, if you want to. The other theory is that San Francisco was always an odd place because for its first roughly 10 to 20 years, it had, it was, it was extremely male because of people coming in and out of the area for various gold rushes. I mean, 49 is not the only one that occurs in California history. So the theory there, and I didn't propose it because I don't particularly like it. It feels like an enormous jump to me is that that, that begins societies where, you know, we're going to have a, a minor's dance and there's only men. So here are all these men learning to dance like women so that they can dance in pairs and one will play the man and one will play the woman. The reason I don't buy that is because eventually women come like all settler societies are overwhelmingly male when they begin. Right. <laughs> all the way back to Carthage. <laughs> so Carthage was not famously, you know, homosexual or something in the ancient world. So all settler societies start out this way. Jamestown was this way. Nobody thinks of Jamestown, Virginia as anything particularly in that in that in that way. So I that's why I don't buy that. I think what changes during the Second World War is that you have a couple things sort of flowing together and then and you know in the same way that you you might want to think about like uh, rivers and streams as that that's just like when the water table that was always down there bursts up above the surface right so if there are things that at different points in history are they're they're there they're flowing underground and now they burst above the surface a couple things are coming together in San Francisco one is that you always have you always have a solution. I, I want to say this delicately because I know that we have a pretty low floor on the listener base. In male-only environments, such as the military in World War II or prisons, there are <laughs> solutions to problems that men come up with. And sailors get isolated with only men, sometimes for months, sometimes certainly historically for years. Okay, So that's always been some component, nasty as it may be, of life in completely male-only environments. Mm -hmm. That comes together with the fact that in wartime, and this is something that you'll pick up if you 
read people talking about it at the time or talking about their memories. So this is a part of sort of the myth of the great, and I mean, I don't mean like in the sense of a falsehood, but in the sense of a, a big story we're told about the quote, greatest generation that I never hear anyone talk about, but that they all talk about when they talk about life and not like on, you know, the anniversary of D-Day is that their experience of being shipped from a farm in South Dakota to you know, live in San Francisco for three years to work in the Navy. And there's also a, there's a very large female auxiliary to the army, to the Navy in San Francisco as well during World War II is that they are dislocated and they can almost become anyone that they want to. Uh-huh. Right. And in, and in that way, World War II for a lot of people on the home front sounds not in all the ways that it gets expressed, but it sounds a lot like the way that hippies talk about going to San Francisco in the 1960s. That is, I'm going to leave my you know, square life in Ohio or South Dakota or wherever, and I'm going to become a different person. And I think that those two things coming together with you know, just a, a large city where there's a variety of people you can meet, those are going to result in the first public versions of homosexual life that we that we really have in the United States with maybe a couple exceptions in New York City but it's it's not as concentrated as it gets to be in San Francisco already in the early 1950s you gave me like two thoughts that went opposite directions there at the end yeah sure go and, for it well I don't know if I can catch the last one it ran away <laughs> um oh goodness it had to do with uh I'm not going to have it. So we'll go back to the other one that I did catch, which is the solutions to problems of isolation and the the argument then that uh, certain behaviors of the male in the human species yeah. are Holy Spirit notwithstanding insatiable and in any non-pious but uh, regulatory uh, group of men over time, the alphas are going to dominate because we don't treat them like dogs. And so they're not spayed and neutered. And so they're going to find their way to do their thing. And that this turns into an actual uh, lifestyle, uh, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over time. So this is where, I mean, and, and you have to, if you go back and you look at not only the, the differing terminology, right? So, I mean, I my kids have books where, you know, they're, they're uh, a new Hardy, what was a new Hardy Boys novel in, I don't know, the 1960s. Everyone is still using gay to mean happy and carefree. Right. And that's the first version of the term that my kids always learn because they get it from the books that we read them. And then they learn the other more modern version. So the terminology is really different. The way that people talk about it, the willingness of people to talk about it is all really different. The thing that you can see is an insight that I have said in other fora. I've said it privately to people. People are very confused by this. It's much easier to see homosexuality in both men and women as simply a response to certain life experiences and circumstances than to see it as an orientation. It simply explains a lot more than saying that suddenly around 1942, you know, Roughly 400 men in and around, you know, a variety of, you know, naval stations of duty, duty stations in San Francisco discovered who they really were. <laughs> that makes a lot less sense than saying that they're reacting to certain environments. That's why it looks like similar environments in the 19th century and similar environments among ancient Greeks, especially men on campaign who are gone from their homes for years in certain cases with mercenaries, rather than saying we began to discover an entirely new group of people who needed to be liberated. That's going to be the story that we'll yeah. especially recount next week. And it, and it happened at a time when the American population was being forcibly moved around by government directives of various kinds, internment orders in the case of the Japanese population on the West Coast, draft orders in the case of much of the male population and the social prestige of volunteering for these things and the excitement of being put somewhere new for free as it were for all the women that volunteered for things like the women the women's army auxiliary so 
you're you're dealing with a time of unusual ferment and change that is going to open human beings up to all kinds of things they weren't doing before. And that's why I want to contend that we don't have the 1960s that we have that some of us are familiar with, even in certain local San Francisco manifestations, such as what goes on in Hate ashbury in The Summer of Love. We don't have the 1960s. We don't even have, therefore, we don't have the 50s. If we don't have World War II and the way that it changes us also on the home front. So I think it it does, it feels like a jump until you think of this as like World War II for the American population is like the earthquake that brings a lot of, a lot of these previously underground streams to the surface, at least in certain places. And San Francisco is the, is the place where those things spring up, let's say, in greatest concentration. So I did think of the other thing, and it was yeah. the, the similarity between the way you describe the uh, the transient nature of people in and around San Francisco, the coming together of a philosophy that ultimately is discover who you are. You're coming here, you're being yeah. taken from where you were, you have no more root, but you're going to become something else. And here we are with visionary dreams to help you do that. And I just hear your first year in college. I mean, it's it's like the whole thing yeah. got exported. Yeah, I think it did get exported. And it, and it differs radically in that way from another group that we talked about when we talked about the Great Depression, which are the Okies, mm-hmm. who are not necessarily all from Oklahoma or from the same town in Oklahoma, but they're sufficiently similar in generally being from the American South or maybe near Southwest and then moving and then having enough in common when they move to coalesce as a group, especially from, you know, the distaste of other people for them that helps to form your group pretty well. And they, they become something sort of new but coherent as a group. So there's a way in which the thing that that you describe as the first year college experience, the reason that is much more exportable than saying, we're going to bring you to college because this college produces, as it were, like modern or (laughs) some sort of educated version of Oki, the stereotypes being utter opposites there, is because the promise here is that you will discover yourself. And that is both a, a promise that's going to be given to a group who will all believe that they're highly individual people, but will all strongly resemble each other in many ways. Mm. And that so, but that group is infinitely expandable. So what's going to happen, for example, is that by by the fifties and the sixties, of course, none of this is still okay on the books. Uh, they're there's not going to be an openly homosexual candidate for even very minor office in San Francisco until the mid-1960s. So you're talking a 20-year lag between self-consciousness as some kind of group in the city where you know men are, men are picking up and moving from Kansas City just to get to San Francisco by the early 50s. Okay. 20-year lag between we exist – and we openly exist and have certain demands. But what you see in that 20-year time period is that certain parts of the city will now become shaped around that group in the way that previous immigrant groups living in coherent sort of, let's say, traditional or we could say normal, to use a word that we used earlier, normal family groups, right? So a Chinese neighborhood is not the same as a Japanese, it's not the same as an Italian, it's not the same as an Irish neighborhood. But the people in all four of those, let's say, immigrant communities, it's like mom, dad, maybe the grandparents, the kids are in a house and the kids go to school and like have, you know, grow up and have businesses and stuff, right? Is that what's going to come to call itself the gay community, the the original word that they're going to use is homophile. But the as the language changes the dynamic, they come to resemble an immigrant group where they begin to have their own neighborhood, the most famous being the Castro district eventually, but that there are going to be others and and things are going to change and people will all live on a couple of streets and then that'll, that'll change in 15 years and they'll be somewhere else. 
but they'll come to be this. It, it, it's almost it's like an immigrant group, but what they have in common is a certain word doesn't exist yet in American English, but what will be thought of as a lifestyle. That's what they have in common. And that lifestyle, and this is where I think the sort of commercial power of this way of thinking about your life develops, is that let's say that, uh, you know, whatever, it's a Japanese neighborhood. So you have a grocery store that is going to sell foods you can't get in the Irish neighborhood. So you can make whatever version of traditional dishes you want to make or something, right? Well, with this group, it's consumer choices are very powerful because they don't have children. So they have incomes that are seemingly infinitely disposable. And the group can be expanded through choice, right? I, I'm going to identify with this group, that choice, right? So if I can do that, I have I have a group of peculiar power because there are certain like weaknesses or pressure points like the future of its children or its need to like share its resources with a rising generation that can't contribute to those resources or its relative limitation by virtue of how many kids did we have and where did they move you know this group can replenish itself from okay you know today somebody moved from Eden Prairie and Tomorrow, somebody's going to move here from Worcester, Massachusetts, and on and on and on. The group is like infinitely expandable, and its political power can solely be devoted to present needs. So it's very it, the fact of group consciousness is really what is going to begin to make San Francisco abnormal in a way that was not necessarily excellent, but would pioneer a certain way of thinking about belonging. You don't belong to a family. You belong to a group that is expressed through a variety of choices like you chose to live in this city. You chose to dress in these clothes. You chose to do this. You chose to do that. So the idea that you are so powerfully shaped by your own choices, especially where you choose to live and what you choose to spend your money on, this is where I – I mean, I and I, I'm not setting this up for shock value. I actually sincerely believe this. I think that what gets set up in San Francisco in the 50s and 60s and will come out completely in the, into the open as a political force in the 70s, as we'll talk about next week, I really think they are the paradigm that our regime has for everybody in modern America, that you would not actually be defined by your parents or where you came from, certainly not by your religion, but that all of those things would move in step with the utterly self-determining personal choices, also consumer choices that you make and the groups that you intend to identify with. So I don't mean that literally they want everybody to be gay. <laughs> I mean that they want everyone to pattern their lives on gay people in the same way that you said, you know, this sounds like a first year college experience. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Right. This is the way, if not in every detail, that they want you to be. Yeah. You know, if you're going to try to have a slave workforce that is as hmm, pliable as it can possibly be, you want them tied to nothing. Right. Except right. for whatever yep. they're eating. You want them to like their food. As long as I can get my food just the way I like it, then you know I'll do whatever you say. And if I have no next generation to care about, no future to have to deal with. On the one hand, uh, I have less, I have less to hope for. And so therefore less of a reason to rebel. Um, on the other hand, I'm not distracted. I can, I can be focused on what I want to focus on all the time, which is inevitably going to be going back to, uh, what my, my justification for existence is, which is my, my job as a slave. So by, by convincing us as a slave populace as a uh, a commoner populace that marriage is futile and that free sexual license is is bliss on earth right. and then showing you how free sexual license that does not produce anything that might uh, draw strings to your future is more likely if you do it this way now yeah. you've given people a, a, a You've given slaves a power over their slavery 
that it it's like drugs, right? It's it's it appears to be too good to be true, and, and it is because it's not really going to ultimately. Well, it's going to bring Sodom and Gomorrah down to the ground, is what it's going to do. Um, but on the, on the surface, from the uh, the overseers and communist overlords' approach, it looks like it's not a good pill to get people to swallow, right? All my slaves don't make more slaves they just work really hard for me as opposed to they have to spend time at home at night um you know caring about the kids so you've got you've got the ultimate slave class eunuchs hey look eunuchs they already thought of it yeah they did yeah right right exactly they did already think of it i mean what we're talking about and talking about san francisco is the growth of a class that previously was not part of the american dream and the american dream was not separated from family because life could not actually be separated from the realities of procreation and death. Yeah. You know, in a single life, that is, that is largely what you do. You're born, there is a next generation or there is not, and then you die. Those are the brute realities. If they made an apostles creed about all, all of our lives, those would be the central realities of our lives apart from, you know, regeneration by the Holy spirit. That's it. So if you can separate life from those realities, that is that you're born, you act as if you are never going to die, and you cannot procreate, then the shape of your life will be radically different. And, and so this is why I don't, you know, I, I don't have some sort of metaphysical attachment to certain states as red states or blue states, because everywhere that you think of as a blue state used to be an extremely normal place. Part of the reason that so many people moved to California you know, long before the Second World War was because land was widely available for families to have families. And they wanted to shape their lives around the good of their families and their small communities. And there were, I mean, there were exceptions, but there were exceptions everywhere. It is the exit from a life shaped by procreation and and also what occurs when there is a birth in your family, which is an awareness of your own death. The two things also get joined in the rite of baptism. But if you've ever looked at a newborn baby, you have probably thought about the fact that this person is at least highly likely, and it's certainly your hope, that she will be alive when you are dead. And that gives you a very different sense of your life. Well, what if you take away those realities from life as a normal matter? You take away normal. So there are statistical ways, you know, there there are statistical ways to express that. Like you could say it's a fairly well-known statistic. There are more dogs in the city of San Francisco than children <laughs> by everyone's measure. But you don't really need statistics to express how radically that changes life when you say, I, I don't ever think that I'm going to die. It never occurs to me and no one's going to remind me of it. I have no religious rituals, for example, to remind me of it. And I will I will not have, nor will I have cognizance of children. So that is shaping a new kind of a human being. And I think that is what begins to make San Francisco abnormal. But the dynamic and the reason that we're talking about it so much is because that abnormality is the very thing that will be exported. And what we're talking about next week is just in microcosm, a story that will be very familiar to the listeners, just not in the local details that we'll have. So that exported reality that you're talking about is always becoming, right? Always becoming, never arriving. Because it can always change. There's There's no fixed form where you're like, I am the father of that person. Nothing ever actually changes that, even when we're both dead. So-and-so begat so-and-so, full stop. Nothing changes it. I can always become someone completely different. When my life does not become determined or limited, I don't say those in a negative way at all, determined or limited by my own limitations as somebody who was born, had the children that I did, and then one day died. Somewhere way back at the start of this episode, uh, you talked about media being disembodied. I'm trying to find the note on that now. Yeah. To even find that where that was, because that that it doesn't exactly tie it all together. But um, the spirit of always becoming is 
very different than, as you just said, the spirit of, you know, I am the father of this boy, of this girl. It is. Right. right? And yeah. you have the very much embodied reality of birth and my blood versus uh, the the picture in the mirror, the makeup I can put on, the, the book I can read, the story I can tell, the songs I can sing, the act I can play. All of those things are, are skin deep at best uh, yep. and disembodied. They're, they're ideologue kind of things. What is, di- what is disembodied is, is always changeable. What is embodied is, is visceral. And so, you know, I mean, down to today, psychological studies reveal that the vast majority of human beings are viscerally disgusted by homosexual behavior when they are shown an image of it. Right. It is the disembodied nature, both of emergent, you know, gay life in San Francisco, but then also of not only the way that we're told about it, and we can talk maybe more about that next week, how that happened, but also the way that we are told to conceive of our own lives, to ignore native disgust, to ignore natural desires, and to supplant what is in biblical terms, what is unnatural. And I don't, I don't just mean homosexuality, but to to supplant what is natural with what is unnatural, and then to pursue those unnatural things. And the way that what is unnatural makes itself plausible, thinkable, desirable to you is by being disembodied so that you can't feel viscerally, you can't sense in a deep way, the kinds of things that you would if it were visceral to you, if you saw it, if you thought about it for a second, that what is unnatural is destructive, it's ugly. If you can be separated from those natural, those visceral reactions or realities, then you can be convinced of almost anything and you can become, like you said, you can turn into almost anything because you're not limited by what is visceral or obvious or natural. If the word straight has become a bad word for you, all you got left is crooked. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us. You wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. 
Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.